Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Dr. H.W. Brands, professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin, where he holds the Jack S. Blanton Senior Chair in History. Dr. Brands has authored an impressive range of articles, reviews, and books. His articles have appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, as well as many other outlets. His many books have received critical acclaim, and he was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for both The First American, The Life and Times of Benjamin Franklin, and Traitor to His Class, The Privileged Life and Radical Presidency of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. His most recent book, which you can find in bookstores or on Amazon, is The Zealot and the Emancipator, John Brown, Abraham Lincoln, and the Struggle for American Freedom, which I just recently finished. And Dr. Brands has a new book coming out on November 9th called Our First Civil War, Patriots and Loyalists in the American Revolution, which is available now for pre-order. Dr. Brands, thanks for joining me today. Delighted to be with you, Reed. So listen, I've been a fan of your work for a long time. Your book on Franklin was incredible, and I want to come back to him in a second. But I want to talk about The Zealot and the Emancipator, this latest book, because in our current political discourse, there's a lot of talk about, you know, this is the most dangerous time since 1860 and those sorts of things. But after reading this book, it seems like maybe 1860 is a little too late as far as a comparison. And I know a lot of times historians are not huge fans of parallel constructions in history, which I totally understand. But I will break that rule regardless. You know, you talk about John Brown and his early conversion to the uber abolitionist that ultimately ends with him hanging from a scaffold in Harper's Ferry. But you really take the readers through a lot of the pre-Civil War history around slavery, whether or not it was the various compromises, the Dred Scott decision, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which led to enormous sectional violence within the Kansas territory at the time. And so take us through a little bit of how you see all of those things that led up to ultimately the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860 and is, you know, as even before he was inaugurated, now we start to see secession. So was it always going to be from the moment that the Constitution was written and ratified? Was the country on this slow motion train to potential disillusion around slavery? I mean, it was always called the peculiar institution. So many of the things within the founding document are antithetical to the idea of slavery. So how did you come to this idea of comparing and contrasting Brown and Lincoln in the lead up to the Civil War? So one of the things I wanted to look at was the radicalization of the country on the issue of slavery. And the radicalization actually took place in both the North and the South. In 1776, the time of American independence, in the 1780s, the time of the writing of the Constitution, attitudes towards slavery were somewhat different North and South. But they were certainly very tepid compared to what they would become in the 1840s, 1850s, and 1860s. It was a common perception that slavery was this troubling institution that America would be better off without. However, 
as Thomas Jefferson pointed out in the original draft of the Declaration of Independence, the United States, the American colonies didn't invent slavery. They inherited slavery. And so the question was, it exists. What do we do about it now? And in the 1770s, there was this feeling that we really don't have to do anything about it right now because slavery appears to be on the way out. It was an institution whose time had come and maybe was going in part because it was antithetical, as you point out, to the principles of a republic, which the United States was from its birth, but also because it was losing its value economically in much of the country. As for example, the tobacco producing plantations in the South were having their soil worn out by year after year of growing tobacco. And so slavery was becoming unprofitable in places like Virginia, the largest colony, the one with the most slaves, by the 1770s and 1780s. George Washington, one of the largest slaveholders in Virginia, was already transitioning out of tobacco and into wheat and oats and, and other crops, crops that don't lend themselves to slave labor. Because one of the things about tobacco, and then as it would turn out with cotton, is that they require lots of hand labor over a large part of the year in a way that wheat does not. Wheat, you plow the ground, you plant it, you go away, and you come back and you harvest it. And so what you want is a flexible workforce. And Washington, Jefferson, nearly all of the founders, even those who owned slaves, thought that slavery was this bad deal, but it was kind of a necessary evil, and they thought it was becoming less necessary. Over the course of the first half of the 19th century, in fact, the years of the lives of John Brown, born in 1800, and Abraham Lincoln, born in 1809, attitudes change on slavery. And, and there emerges what I call this radicalization of opinions on slavery. So John Brown was one who was radicalized in opposition to slavery. As a young man, as a boy, he observed slavery. He grew up in Ohio and he saw slaves coming and going. He didn't think too much of it. But as he got older and started associating with people who were joining this new abolitionist movement, and here it's important to note the distinction between people who were simply opposed to slavery as this bad idea. Thomas Jefferson was anti-slavery. George Washington was anti-slavery, but they weren't abolitionists. Abolitionists meant slavery must end right now. Slavery is the most important issue that faces the United States and ending it comes before everything else. And so that was a radical position to take by 1830. So William Lloyd Garrison, who became the most prominent, or at least the noisiest abolitionist in America, founded his abolitionist newspaper, The Liberator, in 1831. And from 1831 into the 40s, 1850s, there is this rising tide of vocal opposition to slavery. At the same time, as a result of this, there was a growing embrace of slavery in the South. Slavery, not simply any longer as a necessary evil, but as something that was a good thing. And some of this is just the natural reaction. When people start telling you that something that you're doing, that you consider necessary to your economic survival, when they say that you're evil, you're a sinner for doing this, you say, no, I'm not. And you come up with explanations as to why I'm not evil. In fact, I'm a good person. And so what you get is the emergence of a school of Southern apologists for slavery and endorsers of slavery in a way that the founders, they were never enthusiastic about slavery at all. But by the time you get to the 1830s and 1840s, there are Southerners who say slavery is this really good institution. It's good not only for the slaveholders, but for the slaves themselves. It Christianizes them. It civilizes them. It does all this stuff. This clearly was self-interested, but nonetheless, it was sincerely held. So you see the division of opinions. You ask the question, so when does the country reach this sort of point of no return? Really, that's what I infer from your question. The first thing I would say as a historian, nothing is ever inevitable until it actually happens. And so I would use the model not exactly of a slippery slope, 
because slippery slopes usually end in disaster. Because once you use that term, you know, we're going downhill, going faster and faster. I would say the country was on something of a tightrope. And it was a tightrope where the American politicians understood that there was a severe contradiction between the principles of republicanism, which are essentially articulated in Jefferson's famous phrase, all men are created equal. In the politics of a republic, everybody is equal. Everybody should be equal. Or at least that should be the guiding principle. Women didn't vote for the most part. And so nobody's particularly surprised that black people didn't vote. But still, there was an understanding that slavery, that's not just unequal, that's grossly unequal. And that is utterly contradictory to the principles of republicanism. And so the founding generation, Washington, Jefferson, Adams, the like, they put America on this tightrope because they couldn't figure out, especially at the Constitutional Convention of 1787, there was no way that they could get nine states to ratify this constitution if they said, and you know what, you have to give up slavery. But it wasn't simply that. It was, it didn't occur to any but maybe two or three of them at that convention that this new government that we were creating would have any right to tell the states how they should organize their domestic institutions. And so it was left up to the states. But anyway, the first generation set America on this tightrope. And the second generation, the generation of people like Henry Clay and Daniel Webster and John Calhoun, they tried to stay on the tightrope. And they were trying to figure out how to reduce the danger to the republic from slavery. But the best they could come up with was a series of compromises. And the compromises were based on the belief of Thomas Jefferson first, then Henry Clay, then Abraham Lincoln, that slavery would end in the South the same way it had ended in the North, when it no longer served its purposes. By the 1820s, slavery didn't exist in the North at all, not because Northerners were seized with a sudden fit of morality or altruism, but because their economy had changed. And there was a belief that modernization causes new demands on economies. And if the South was going to modernize, it had to get out of this semi-feudal system based on slavery and get into a modern capitalist model. And that would come if the country didn't fall off this tightrope. And so that was seen as the principal job of statesmen who put holding the union together as sort of their highest goal. If we can stay on the tightrope, maybe we can get to the other side when Southerners will come to their senses and realize slavery no longer serves their purposes. Let me ask you this, because, you know, it's interesting you say that I was doing an interview earlier today in which, you know, this idea of cognitive dissonance came up and the idea that, you know, if you consider yourself to be a good person, but if you're a good person, can you necessarily hold someone else in bondage? And so there very quickly, the rationalization process begins. I'm not a bad person. This is our heritage. This is our culture. This is good for them. And so looking back, obviously, those things seem inconceivable that that kind of rationalization could happen, but obviously it did. Yeah. So one of the things that I try to do as a teacher is to make that seemingly inconceivable leap conceivable, because I think it's necessary for us to try to understand the past. And this is not to apologize for the past by any means, but just how could they do such things? And one of the ways I do this is to point out that every generation has these things that nag at its conscience. And so, for example, pretty much everybody today thinks war is a bad thing. You know, other things being equal, they don't want to see more war. On the other hand, there aren't very many committed pacifists who say that military force is never a legitimate response to actions by other countries. And so war is a necessary evil. And we put up with it. Not only do we put up with it, we celebrate it, at least when our guys go to war and we make heroes of them. 
And I would say that this isn't that much different from attitudes towards slavery. Now, I hope the world will eventually figure out a way to get beyond war. And then they'll look back on our generation and say, how in the world could you allow this sort of thing? You know, Americans often call World War II the good war. The good war, this killed 60 million people. What in the world are you talking about? Stud Sterko wrote a book called The Good War. <laughs> exactly. So we do this all the time. Every generation does this. So you could say that we have our blind spots. And I wouldn't say that it's necessarily blind. I can't figure out how to deal with international affairs without at least the threat of war. Not everybody is as enlightened as I might like them to be. And people who I think they were sincere, I think they were good-hearted slave owners in 1810 and 1820 because they inherited a bunch of slaves. And what are you going to do about it? It's one thing to say it's wrong, but what are you going to do about it to make the lives of the people that you're responsible for better? And it wasn't always clear that immediate emancipation, no strings attached, would be the best thing for everybody because it was a hard life for black people in the United States, whether you were a slave or not. Right. And some of those challenges can continue to this very day. Um, let me ask you this. So as the abolitionist movement is picking up steam, John Brown goes to Kansas. At that point, is he a radical abolitionist, one? And then two, what is the, in your mind, both as a historian and in the context of John Brown, when does the shift from a radical to a violent radical or a radical willing to utilize violence for what they believe to be the moral end? How does that occur? When does that occur? It occurs at the point when that individual says, my interpretation of a higher law absolves me from the requirement to obey the laws of man. I can kill people, and that's justified by my interpretation of God's law as it applies to slavery or something else. And in John Brown's case, it evolves over time. So John Brown in 1837 was living in Hudson, Ohio. It was an anti-slavery community as something of an abolitionist community. When he learned of the murder of an abolitionist editor named Elijah Lovejoy in Illinois, and it happened to be on the free soil of Illinois, and a pro-slavery mob incensed at Lovejoy's efforts to get abolitionist newspapers distributed throughout Missouri, came and smashed his press and then killed him. And John Brown said to himself and to his friends, they started the war. They started the war by killing someone who did nothing more than merely speak out against slavery, which is an evil institution to begin with. So John Brown stood up in his church in Hudson, Ohio, and said here in front of the eyes of God, in front of my fellow congregants, I pledge to devote my life to the battle against slavery. Now, it took him a while to figure out exactly what the battle meant. The battle could be waged politically. It could be waged educationally. But the battle became an actual battle in the 1850s when following the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, which opened Kansas territory to settlement by both settlers from the South who could bring their slaves and settlers from the North who would not bring their slaves. But it was opened on the principle of so-called popular sovereignty, which meant that once Kansas territory was filled up with enough settlers to warrant having a constitution and making a state, those on the ground then would decide for slavery or against slavery, which meant that there was an implicit competition for each side, anti-slavery, pro-slavery, to get most of their settlers there and to discourage settlers from the other side from coming. So John Brown went to Kansas basically to fight on behalf of freedom in Kansas. And in the middle of that fight, John Brown incensed that his fellow abolitionists were not taking matters seriously enough, led a small band of followers on a midnight raid 
into a hamlet, a, a very small community on the banks of Potawatomi Creek. And they dragged five pro-slavery settlers from the bed men and slaughtered them, hacked them to death with broadswords. This was, in our modern terminology, a clear case of terrorism. This was an act of violence against people who posed no direct threat to John Brown to send a political message. And the message was to other potential pro-slavery settlers to Kansas, you come and this could happen to you. By that point, John Brown is clearly crossed the line from merely political and rhetorical abolitionism to militant and violent abolitionism. So I want to take a step back because the reason why we have the Kansas-Nebraska Act, as you write, is Stephen Douglas, senator from Illinois, longtime rival of Abraham Lincoln, is a Democrat and wants to be president. And he knows that he needs the support of Southern Democrats in order to win a nomination and ultimately the presidency. And so he pushes something through for, it appears to be, and correct me if I'm wrong, his personal political gain. That's true enough. I would add, though, that politicians almost always explain to themselves, you could say rationalize to themselves, that this thing that is going to serve my purposes will also serve the interests of the country. Our democracy is based on that idea. Douglas will get elected if a majority of people agree with the policies that he's promoting. Politicians, as people in all walks of life, do this all the time. They find a way to align their principles with their actions and their principles with their interests. And one would like to think that when some adjustment has to be made, it's the interests that are aligned to match the principles. But at least equally often, it's the principles that are adjusted to match the interests. But what this required for Douglas was to give something to the South. And the South had been complaining for some time that it was shut out of the West. And Kansas territory was one of the first parts of the Louisiana Purchase that came up for settlement as a territory preparatory to becoming a state. And slavery had been shut out of that part of the Louisiana Purchase by the Missouri Compromise of 1820. So what the Kansas and Nebraska did was to repeal the part of the Missouri Compromise that said slaveholders can't take their slaves to the northern part of the Louisiana Purchase. From the standpoint of the slaveholders, their position was, in our states, we interpret property as including slaves. In northern states, your property is your horses and your cows, and you can take those kinds of property into the Louisiana Territory, and we can take our horses and our cows, but we can't take our slaves. And the Constitution lets us decide what personal property consists of. And so they said, we have every right to do this, and we don't like it that we gave away in the Missouri Compromise that right. And so they wanted it back. And they demanded this of anybody that was going to get the Democratic nomination for president. And so Stephen Douglas obliged. So let me ask you this. If you fast forward a couple of years to February of 1860, Lincoln gives his famous Cooper Union speech, his right makes might speech, in which he says, among other things, that the very act of the federal government putting things in place vis-a-vis slavery, repealing things in place vis-a-vis slavery means that the southern states had accepted the idea that the federal government could, in fact, regulate slavery, one, and that, two, that he knew that it didn't matter what argument he made, that the southerners would come up with an argument to call him evil, to call the idea of abolition evil, and to justify their own means regardless of what it was. So there were two or three aspects of this slavery question during the period you talk about by the early 1860 that led to both sides sort of talking past each other to make the political point they wanted to make. 
So when Lincoln was talking about federal regulatory power over slavery, first of all, the federal government had the regulatory power over the slave trade. And that's clearly in the Constitution. And the legal slave trade ended. That is, imports of slaves ended in 1808. And nobody really complained about that that much. The second question was, how about slavery in the states? By the understanding of the people who wrote the Constitution and of everybody after, the states made up their own minds regarding slavery. Massachusetts could say no more slavery. South Carolina could say we're going to continue slavery. Lincoln accepted that. He believed that that was constitutional. He believed that that was lawful. He believed that it was imprudent for South Carolina to continue. He hoped that the South Carolinians, the Georgians, the Trinchians, and everybody else would come to the same conclusion that Northerners had come to, but he believed that they could not be forced, could not be forced by the U.S. Congress, could not be forced by the president. But intermediate, there was the question of what about slavery in the federal territories? And that's what Kansas was. And that's why Kansas was this big deal. The Republican Party, which emerged out of the wreckage of the old Whig Party in mid-1850s, took the position that Congress was allowed to legislate on slavery in the federal territories. Those aren't states. So we're not talking about infringing on states' rights. And these are federal territories. This was territory that was acquired by the federal government. They pointed to the precedent of the Ohio Territory, what became Ohio and Illinois and Indiana and so on, which in the 1780s in the Articles of Confederation banned slavery from the region that would become those free states. And Southerners made no big deal about it then. Now, this in part because that was at a time when even Southerners thought slavery was on its way out. So they weren't really giving up anything of value. But by the 1840s and 1850s, they discovered that slavery could be valuable in a place like Kansas. Now, here I have to point out something often overlooked at the time and has even been more often overlooked by historians. And that is by the 1850s, slavery was unprofitable in Virginia as a form of plantation labor. But what made slavery profitable in Virginia was the export of slaves from Virginia to places like Kansas. So human beings had been commoditized. Exactly. And they had to be exported. So there was an internal slave trade. And if not for that, then plantation owners in Virginia would have been losing money. And so people tend to find ways of explaining and justifying things that they have to do to make a profit in whatever enterprise they're engaged in. But this was why expansion was such a big deal to the Southerners, because those ones in the East who had most of the political clout, they were the ones who most depended on the domestic export of slaves into the West. And this was why there was such a big deal about settling Texas, because Texas was this enormous market for slaves. And with the demand for slaves, the price of slaves in Virginia and the Carolinas rose, and it kept those plantations afloat. Otherwise, if it had been simply a matter of Virginia being self-sufficient as a slave economy, then the West wouldn't have been such a big deal. But it was a huge deal. It meant the difference between bankruptcy and profit for even these Eastern slaveholders. I had not considered that. And that, I say this as someone in 2021, <laughs> makes it even more odious than it could have been even before, is that the idea is like, I'm not even utilizing this human being to work on my behalf. I am literally using them, and I hate to use this expression, as breeding stock. Exactly. I mean, that sort of leaves me, you know, gut punched a little bit just to even consider that, especially as you noted, that from an agricultural perspective, the crops are becoming less and less necessary of that constant labor. And we don't think of Kansas as like a tobacco state, right? Like Kansas has wheat fields. So the way you explain it is it was a necessary self-supporting economic factor, even if the people to whom they were exporting it 
were not necessarily going to get all the utilization because of the crops they were growing. That's quite true. There's another element too, and that is by the 1850s, there was a growing feeling in the South that we simply cannot live any longer with these people who call us sinful, evil, you know, bad folks. And Thomas Jefferson was the first to note the sectional divide in slavery at the time of the Missouri Compromise. The Missouri Compromise was the first aspect of American law that wrote a geographic boundary between slave states and free states, potential slave states and free states into American law. Before then, you could read American law you know, all you want, and you would see nothing that said, in the North, there's going to be no slavery. In the South, there's going to be slavery. And so that sectional divide grew and grew. And as people like John Brown committed the terrorist acts that he did in Kansas, then Southerners could say, we are not safe. First of all, our property is not safe as long as we remain part of this union. And when Abraham Lincoln would say, as he did in his famous or infamous house divided speech, a house divided against itself cannot stand. This country cannot remain half slave and half free. And it was clear from Lincoln's anti-slavery position that he intended that it would be entirely free, which meant that the South was going to lose slavery. You didn't have to be a conspiracy theorist. You didn't have to exaggerate things very much if you were a Southerner, white Southerner who owned slaves, to believe that if the Republican Party ever came into power, that your interest in slavery was threatened. And after John Brown led his raid on Harper's Ferry, this in actual Virginia itself, one of the slave states, Harper's Ferry was then in Virginia, it would become in West Virginia. But John Brown, this infamous murderer from Kansas, now tried to start a slave uprising within Virginia itself. If it had succeeded, certainly hundreds, perhaps thousands of white people, quite possibly men, women, and children, have been slaughtered as a result of this. And if you're a Virginian, you're thinking, wait a minute, this is what opposition to slavery in this country has come to. And it was made worse by the fact that after John Brown's raid failed and he was arrested, tried, convicted, executed, abolitionists in the North all but canonized John Brown. Right. He became a martyr. Precisely. So fast forward now, John Brown has been executed in Harper's Ferry. And, you know, the one thing too, Dr. Brands, that I think is so fascinating is how much of what we see in this period of the mid 1850s to 1860 will have such a lasting effect. There's the rise of Lincoln, John Brown, and the radicalization of abolitionism. The Whig Party dies, the Republican Party rises. Just an incredibly dynamic time in American history. Yeah. One thing I will continue to point out, though, until the Civil War actually began. Nobody was sure it was going to begin. Abraham Lincoln did his level best to keep it from happening. But he said, let them fire the first shot. Ah, yes, yes. And once the South, seven Southern states, seceded, Lincoln made very clear, at least once he got inaugurated, he didn't say anything at first. But once he got inaugurated, he said, you know, you're not going to get to leave this union peacefully. So just going to let you know that. Even then, a lot of Southerners thought those Yankees will never fight because they don't really care about freeing slaves. I mean, most of them don't like black people anyway. So why would they care? However, their mistake was to make this about the union. Now, in fact, it is a chestnut of historical argumentation over what was the Civil War about? Was it about slavery or was it about states' rights? And the answer is it was about both, but it was about 
different parts of that at key moments differently. So, for example, when the South seceded, the Southerners seized most of the federal military posts in the South. There was one that remained, and this was at Fort Sumter because it was on an island in the harbor of Charleston, South Carolina. Under the watchful eyes of the battery there. Exactly. And Lincoln has to decide, okay, do we simply let Fort Sumter fall because it was running out of provisions? Its soldiers are going hungry. And he decides, no, I'm going to reprovision it. And he's warned, okay, that it's probably going to be resisted. And Lincoln's position was, well, let them fire the first shot. And that's exactly what happened. And once the firing started, the fort had to surrender within just several hours because they couldn't defend themselves. But Lincoln then could say, the Union has been fired upon. And at that point, Lincoln issues a call for volunteers. And he asked for 75,000 men to rally to the flag. Why? Was it to free the slaves? Not at all. Lincoln knew if he asked for volunteers to free the slaves, nobody would show up. Americans in the North didn't want to go to war to free the slaves. He said instead, come go to war to defend the Union. Ah, the Union, this inheritance we've had from the founders. And so for them, for Lincoln, the war was not about slavery, at least not at first. It was about saving the Union. And as late as the summer of 1862, more than a a year into the war, Lincoln wrote a letter to Horace Greeley, an abolitionist editor in New York, who asked him, Mr. Lincoln, what do you see as the connection between slavery and this war? And Lincoln said, my job is to preserve the Union. If I could save the Union by freeing all the slaves, I would do that. If I could save the Union by freeing none of the slaves, I'd do that. If I could save the Union by freeing half and leaving the other half in bondage, I'd do that. My job is to save the Union. Now, abolitionists became very impatient with Lincoln. What are you talking about? This war is all about slavery. Without slavery, there wouldn't have been this war. And you keep talking about it as though it's just a matter of the Union. And Lincoln eventually came around to the point of view that, you know, it would be really awkward if somehow the Union were preserved with slavery as intact as before, because then we'd just be back to where we were in 1859. And it's going to happen again. Yeah. And so Lincoln was talked into issuing the Emancipation Proclamation. He came around to it of his own, but he... He issued the Emancipation Proclamation, and all of a sudden, now there are two war aims of the North, still to preserve the Union, still a matter of states' rights, in particular, the South doesn't have the right to leave the Union, and secondly, now it's also to free the slaves, except that one's still complicated a bit by the fact that the Emancipation does not apply to slaves in states that did not leave the Union. I mean, people who study the Civil War know that there were four slave states that stayed in the Union. But for most people, it was the slave South against the free North. No, no, it was complicated. And in fact, Lincoln's emancipation did free some of the slaves and leave other slaves in bondage. So even after the end of the war, there were slaves in Maryland, Missouri, and in Kentucky. And I guess there's still a few in Delaware. And those weren't finally freed until the 13th Amendment was passed. Also, one of Lincoln's hopes was that the Emancipation Proclamation would also encourage now emancipated slaves to join the Union ranks. Yes. So in fact, Lincoln made an explicit plea to slaves, essentially males of military age, come on over to our side of the lines and you can help fight for your freedom. Because Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation under his authority as commander in chief. It's a common practice during wartime to commandeer, basically to seize property of the enemy and use it to your own purposes. So for example, Ulysses Grant spent most nights during the war living in the house of some slaveholder. But the understanding was, okay, when the war ends, you give the property back. And this was the problem with the Emancipation Proclamation. 
because Lincoln's authority as commander-in-chief would evaporate as soon as the war ended. And Lincoln, being a lawyer himself, could easily envision that if the war ends without something more substantial by way of freeing the slaves, then lawyers for Southern slaveholders will say, give me my slaves back. That's the way it works in war. And this is why in the next breath, after issuing the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln said, and now we need to amend the Constitution because on the American system, you amend the Constitution and that solves the problem once and for all. Well, there's still the problem of actually enforcing the amendment, but at least you no longer have any standing in law to debate the point. So let me ask you a couple of questions, and I'd like to fast forward to where we are today, and I want to take advantage of your historical perspective. The first is, is that in the time we're talking about, we had the North and the South. Now we have the red and the blue. But it seems like the South is still very much a block, a BLOC, that it tends to have a very common culture, a very common political outlook. There might be a purple state here or there south of the Mason-Dixon line, but it still tends to be fairly, I don't want to say homogenous, and I don't want to get overly political here, but let's use a scientific thing. If you look at vaccination rates, the old Confederacy seems to be pretty close to the bottom of it. Yes and no. So if you look at every Southern state, well, most of the Southern states have a big city in them. I live in Texas and Houston is the most cosmopolitan city in the United States today. And Houston is far from being red. Houston is as blue as can be. And Dallas slightly, I live in Austin. Austin's very blue. San Antonio is quite blue. So the problem with the analogy is that even in the South, you have these bright blue, large areas. In fact, it's almost fair to say that more people as people live in the blue parts of Texas than live in the red parts of Texas. Now, the red parts of Texas are overrepresented in the Texas state legislature and in congressional districts and so on through gerrymandering. So one of the questions that does come up is, are we on the verge of another civil war? And the answer is, I certainly hope not. And I can give some reasons for arguing that we are not. And one of them has to do with your, something you're getting at. And maybe you're kind of pushing back against this preemptively. But the sectional division in the country is nowhere near as clear cut as it was back then. The other thing is that we live in an age of modern media. In the 1850s, people who lived in the North generally had no idea what was happening in the South and vice versa. This is why Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, was such a revelation. Because for the first time, people thought they were learning what slavery was like. And occasionally you would get visitors from the North who would go South and say, oh my gosh, Abraham Lincoln had to learn what a slave auction was like. He was born in Kentucky, grew up in Indiana and Illinois, but he didn't learn what a slave auction was like until he, as a late teenager, he rafted a flatboat down to New Orleans and he saw it. And so people today are much more aware of what's going on in the rest of the country than people were back then. It's harder to think of the North or the West Coast or something as foreign country today than it is back then. And people are simply much more mobile in terms of growing up in one place and moving to another part of the country. This might sound like a trivial thing, but it's not trivial at all. Since air conditioning was invented, the South became cosmopolitanized in a way it had never been before. Before air conditioning, people would not move from the North to the South. No national corporation would dream of placing headquarters in the South because it was just a hardship post for four months out of the year. Now it's more comfortable to live in Florida than it is in Minnesota. So you've written books on Benjamin Franklin, 
you've written a book with Abraham Lincoln as a key character, and you wrote a book on Franklin Roosevelt, each of them very prominent in a dynamic, transformative time in the United States. At its beginning, at its greatest crisis, at its next greatest crisis, whether that's the Great Depression or World War II, if they were here today, what do you think they would think of our political discourse and where the country stands? Because as you talked about in the book, there's a radicalization in the North and the abolition side, and maybe on the Southern side too, in defense of the institution about one thing, about a specific idea. It feels like we're polarizing now, but there's no one thing, right? You know, if I like it, then they hate it. And if they hate it, I like it. Yeah, you're right about that. But I get back to something that I alluded to earlier, and that is by the 1850s. There were plenty of people in the South who said that this country is no longer safe for me, my interests, my values. And in places like South Carolina, other issues had been divisive before slavery. South Carolina nearly seceded from the Union in the 1830s over a tax bill, a tariff. That was the nullification crisis. The nullification crisis, exactly. Daniel Webster, who would become the lion of defending the Union in the 1810s, led a movement in New England to consider seceding from the Union over the issue of the War of 1812. They said this is a job that was cooked up by Westerners and Southerners, and it's antithetical to the interests of Northerners, New Englanders in particular. So there was something about the period before the Civil War that I'm going to say it's like the period before Brexit, where in the case of Britain, folks in the UK and the European Union, there were a series of incidents, a series of issues that caused people just to sort of chafe under the rules that they were getting out of the EU. And they basically said, we don't like that. We don't like foreigners telling us what to do. That was the emotional part of the movement for secession. It's important to note that only a small minority of Southerners own slaves. So how do you get the rest of the white folks in the South to go along? Well, by the late 1850s, Southerners were identifying themselves as different from Northerners, and they could make a plausible case that they had the right to secede. This was something that constitutional lawyers had been arguing about from the 1790s. Is there a constitutional right to secede? And John Calhoun, who is one of the most learned and effective arguers on the Southern side, said, yes, we do. And he said, this is why. And Daniel Webster and people like Abraham Lincoln said, no, you don't. But you could make a plausible constitutional case for it. You could make an even stronger case simply under the principles of self-government. People ought to have the government that they want. And so whether you justified it under the Constitution or under the same kind of right of self-determination that gave rise to the American Revolution, the American colonies in 1776 had no right under British law to leave the Union, so they appealed to natural rights. And so this is what the Declaration of Independence was all about. And so Southerners thought it's our right to do this, and we don't like outsiders telling us what to do. And so I would say that it doesn't have to be a single issue. A single issue can bring things to a head all at one time. But if people in one part of the country simply get in the habit of thinking, those folks in Washington or those folks on the left coast or whatever, they're not like me. They're not like us. They don't have our interests at heart. Then there's often a corollary belief, well, we could do this better ourselves. And in the case of the Civil War, I think that even absent slavery, I have no way of proving this, and it's only a notion. I'm not going to go much farther than that. 
somebody would have tested the right of secession on one issue or another sooner or later just to see, okay, what's going to happen if we do this? Now, the South tried to do it, and it got beaten down militarily. Southerners weren't convinced. They were simply defeated. But they were defeated sufficiently that no one has seriously attempted it ever since. But it's not out of the question to me that somebody could say, well, you know, California, let's just take California because as a state on its own, it's big enough to be, you know, the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world. Let's say, for example, if the Supreme Court strikes down Roe v. Wade, okay, this is certainly plausible. And if the Republicans should regain a majority in both houses of Congress and the presidency, then they might push for a national anti-abortion law. Now, I'm not going to draw a straight connection between slavery and the abortion issue, except to point out that it's one that doesn't really lend itself morally to compromise. Because if you believe that abortion is murder, you can't compromise that. And if, on the other hand, you believe that a woman has a right to control her own body, you can't compromise on that. Morally, you can't do it. You can compromise on taxes. You can compromise on lots of things. But those are moral issues that are hard to compromise. And if Californians should wake up one day and say, you know what, they passed this national anti-abortion law, then people in California say, wait a minute, you know, we didn't sign up for this. And we don't think that our interests, our rights are safe any longer in this union. So we're out of here. Now, it's true that there are parts of Northern California, Eastern California wouldn't like this, and they might do what West Virginia did. Okay, they'll secede from the seceded part. In Oregon and Washington, estates might very well do what several other Southern states did. Okay, they joined the, we'll call it the Pacific Confederacy or something like that. We might be far enough away from the 1860s that somebody's going to give it a try. After all, mm -hmm. Brexit, they pulled out of the EU. Now, the EU did have an escape clause. The Constitution still doesn't have an escape clause, but people might say, oh, come on, there aren't going to be American troops marched against Sacramento. Well, that's the question too, right? It would seem hard for me to believe that, yes, you would deploy several hundred thousand American forces into California to put down a secession effort. Maybe not. I don't know. Right. So I put the question to my students in Texas. I say, okay, suppose that California secede. How many of you would volunteer to suit up and put yourself in harm's way, maybe get killed, to keep California in the union? And most of them say, well, hell, California, good riddance. I'll point out that there were plenty of people in the North that said exactly that to the South in 1860 and 1861. If they want to leave, let them leave. In fact, William Lloyd Garrison, the famous abolitionist, he had been saying for years that the free North should secede from the slave South, which was kind of an odd position to take because it wouldn't have freed any slaves. It would have allowed the abolitionists to wipe their hands of this and have a clean conscience in dealing with slavery. So there's kind of layers on layers of motivations behind all of this stuff. I hope that we're a long way from anything like a constitutional crisis like that, because the issues that we're talking about they're not existential issues. Well, abortion could be one, and they could come to that. But the other stuff, okay, immigration, we've been arguing about immigration forever. Taxes, vaccination, okay, vaccination, that's something that people argue about, but pandemic's not going to go on forever. So I don't know. I certainly hope this isn't going to happen. One thing that I will say is that for a lot of people today, 
at least I've observed this as I've been talking about the book on John Brown and Abraham Lincoln. It's easier to warm up to John Brown than in some ways it is to Abraham Lincoln because John Brown knew exactly what he wanted and he was willing to put his life on the line. And compared to John Brown, Abraham Lincoln was constantly saying, hold on, we've got to compromise, we've got to do this, we've got to do that. And so John Brown is this more dynamic figure, in some ways a more compelling, charismatic figure than Lincoln, but it only works as a model for action, let's say for people today, if you conclude, as John Brown did, that the war has already begun, and therefore I get to use the weapons of war. And Lincoln didn't agree with that at all. For him, John Brown was a terrorist, and he made a point of saying, John Brown is not a Republican. John Brown is not one of us. You know, we don't believe in what John Brown believes in. But John Brown believed that the war had begun, and then, of course, a war did come. So he looks kind of like John the Baptist, and he got there you know, ahead of everybody else. And so not only does he get credit for courage, but for foresight. But until our next civil war begins, I think it's utterly irresponsible for anybody to say, oh, we're already over the edge, and therefore we're justified in taking up arms on behalf of our cause against whatever somebody else would be. That's something you just don't get to do in a democracy. Well, so let me ask you that, because on January 6th, we saw people utilize violence against democracy. Just in Portland this week, we saw a bunch of people deploying violence on behalf of their political belief. And so my question to you is, God hope that the war has not, quote, begun. How do you excise that from a civil society? Can you push it back out, you know, to the outer boundaries, to the unacceptable envelope of society? I would say that for as long as you can, you treat this as a matter of law and order. When people break the law, when they broke into the Capitol, when they assaulted police officers and other people, you treat them as criminals. You don't treat them as political prisoners. You don't treat them as soldiers. You treat them as criminals. If you are an elected official, you do everything you can to calm things down. You send out the police when the police are necessary. If the police can't handle it, then maybe you send out the National Guard. But you do not legitimize these violent affronts to the political system. Yeah, there are lawbreakers every day. People break the law. And so treat them as criminals when they break the law. Don't treat them as patriots. Don't treat them as martyrs. Don't treat them as anything more than they actually are. Now, if we get beyond this to when we're actually in a war, then that's a different matter. I'll point out, however, that Lincoln refused to acknowledge the Civil War was a war. He called it the insurrection, the rebellion, because to have a war means that the, the other side, you have another side. Exactly. There is a sovereign nation that you're at war with, and Lincoln refused to accept the independence and sovereignty of the Confederacy. So he treated the rebels as rebels, not as soldiers of another country. So listen, before we go, tell us about the new book you have coming out called The First Civil War. It's coming out in November. Tell us about that. Yeah, the book is called Our First Civil War, and the subtitle is Patriots and Loyalists in the American Revolution. And one of my jobs as a historian is to show that history is more complicated than you think. No matter how complicated you think it is, it's more complicated than that. And the image that we have of the American Revolution is the Americans on one side and the British on the other side. And the Americans are waving the flag for freedom and the Declaration of Independence and all men are created equal. And the British are these bad imperialists and they're trying to suppress the American rights and so on. In fact, it was much more complicated than that. And it was complicated in the sense that by no means we're all Americans in favor of independence. So Americans were as deeply split between independence and loyalty to Britain, 
as Americans were between North and South on the eve of the Civil War. And in fact, the worst fighting in the War of American Independence, the American Revolutionary War, was not between the bitterest fighting, was not between the British and the Americans, but it was between Americans and Americans, between the patriots and the loyalists. So in many ways, for the United States to win its independence, the American patriots had to win their civil war against the loyalists. So within the Revolutionary War was this civil war. And so I call it our first civil war. And I focus on the lives and experiences of several patriots, well-known names like George Washington and John Adams and Benjamin Franklin, and loyalists, names that are somewhat less familiar, but one of them is William Franklin, which demonstrates how deeply America's first civil war split the country. So Benjamin Franklin, hero of the patriots, William Franklin, the leader of the loyalists. So it came you know, right down and split families apart. All right. So your new book will be out November 9th. I will certainly be on the lookout for it. And where can our listeners find you online? So I'm on Twitter at HW Brands, and I have a Substack blog that I put out about three times a week, and it's called A User's Guide to History. You can find that on Substack at HW Brands as well. And I will sign up for your Substack as soon as we're done recording here. And as always, folks, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. And until next time, thanks, Dr. Brands. We'll see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.